I am joined by Afonso Pecatiello, founder of the Macro Compass. Alf, welcome back. How are you doing? Very well, Jack, and probably the best pronunciation of my complicated Italian surname I've heard from an American so far. Well done. Oh, wow. High praise. Thank you. Alf, what's your framework for 2023? How do you think things are going to go play out? Because I feel like now is a time of uh, maximum uncertainty. 2022 was was kind of like looking back quite easy. You know, central banks, inflation was high and rising. Central banks would, would hike and that would have all sorts of ripple effects. Now, uh, you know, if you everyone has a different opinion. What's your opinion? 2023 in markets and in the economy, Jack, are going to be the reflection of how tight monetary and fiscal policy was in 2022. It's really as simple as that. So the markets and the economy take a la- have a lag, a lagged reaction to how tight conditions are from the Federal Reserve, from central banks, and from a fiscal perspective. So in 2022, you had a sudden halt of credit creation, uh, both from an let's say from an impulse perspective from the government, so fiscal stimulus was not there anymore. And you also had a negative rate of change in real credit creation to the private sector, inflation adjusted. And then you also had, of course, a much tighter monetary policy. There has never, ever been a period in time where if you tighten both fiscal and monetary policy with a lag of 9 to 12 months, you don't have severe drawdowns in the economy. So in you know the labor market, growth, earnings, and all of that, and inflation as well, and markets too, because you're basically walking towards a dimension where growth is not strong anymore, but it's weak. And I think 2023 is going to be exactly that, where we are now, especially in the first quarter of 2023, is a confluence of factors that is strongly challenging this narrative. So you have the Chinese reopening, which is kind of feeding slowly but surely into the data. You have loosening of financial conditions late last year, which is playing into better data this year. So you have some bottoming out maybe of housing, PMIs. So people get very excited about a renewed uh, nominal growth push to the economy. I think this is a false signal and the main narrative remains a recession to start in the US in summer this year. Thanks, Alf. I know you and a lot of other people analyze markets from a million different ways, but the central bank analyzes it, the Federal Reserve analyzes it from, from two ways and uh, looking at inflation, looking at uh, unemployment of the labor market. So let, let's look at the, the economy through the lens of the Federal Reserve. Uh, mm-hmm. Inflation in the US has uh, been falling, but a lot of that has been because of uh, energy prices. Uh, and the labor market is a very tight. Unemployment rate is 3.4 percent, something like a 50-year low. Yeah. So pretty much every, anyone who wants a job uh, can get a job. Um, and as such, you know, the economy continues to run hot. If everyone has a job, everyone can buy things. Everyone can, you know, borrow, pay off debts. Defaults are low. You see that in the credit card data. Uh, so those two forces, I guess, the inflate the inflation uh, support supports that view. But there's also this this uh, you know view that inflation will reaccelerate um, because you know, food and energy prices uh, uh, might go back down. Uh, as, and as we saw in Europe today, uh, core inflation in, in Europe is, I think, 5.6% for, for the entire Eurozone. And I don't know how many a year high that is, but uh, many, many years. <laughs> yes. So let's take, again, let, let's assume we are a central bank right now, Jack. Let's analyze it from their perspective, right? Because if you're a market participant, ultimately, anticipating the reaction function of central banks matters a lot to your portfolio. So you're a central bank now. Let's say you're the Fed, and then we'll talk about the ECB. So if you're the Fed now, you have a dual mandate. 
One is to bring inflation down to 2% sustainably over time. The other one is uh, to keep the labor market tight and working. So you put them on a scale right now, Jack, and the labor market being tight, it's well achieved. It's way too tight, especially if you compare it to your inflation mandate, which is completely off. And central banks, especially Powell, is looking at inflation through the lenses of core services X housing, which is a lot of jargon to actually say the inflationary components which are driven by wage growth, by slack in the economy. If there is no slack and wage growth is very strong, then normally core services X housing inflation is strong. The three-month, three-month annualized rate, and again, the reason why I'm using all this nuances and complicated things is just because Powell is doing that. So I'm just looking at inflation like he is. Three-month, three-month annualized rates are actually around 4 to 5% in this very core stick inflationary measure. So that's more than double the Fed mandate, showing no signs of slowdown, especially after the revisions for last year. The labor market, on the other end, is showing you know, signs of cooling off, if you look like under the hood, um, full-time hiring in the US on a year-on-year basis is below trend. Uh, part-time workers are being uh, disposed of, which normally temp workers are a leading indicator for full-time uh, hiring, right? You first dispose of perm, uh, temp workers and then you move to your permanent staff. But overall, today's stage of the labor market is, it's tight if you look at it from T0 today, it is slowing down a little bit on a rate of change, too slow as a slowdown for the Fed to feel happy about it. So what do you do? Well, central banks have this concept of um, neutral rate, especially real neutral rate. And for the US, that's roughly in the zero to 50 basis point area in real terms, Jack, right? So if you're the Fed, then that means that if your inflation target is 2%, your neutral nominal rate should be about 2.5%, 275, something along these lines. History shows that every time you want to try and slow down sticky inflationary pressures, the level, the prevailing level of real rates, the observed level, should be 100 to 200 basis points above neutral, minimum, to make sure that you are tight enough so the economy slows down, credit slows down, growth slows down. For the Fed, that means that real rates should be 150 basis points, 200 basis points to really feel confident about it. Now, Powell wants this to be transmitted throughout the curve. So the first thing you do is the front end, right? How do you do that? You raise nominal Fed funds above the level of core inflation. So we said core inflation is four, four and a half. If you look at these measures they care about, well, Fed funds must be five and a half minimum to give it a start. You also want this tightness to be transmitted around the yield curve. So five-year rates should also be relatively tight, right? So you should have five-year real yields at 150 basis points. Today, we are getting there. Now, one of the problems with this approach from the Federal Reserve is it's focusing on the most lagging indicators in the cycle, which is core services inflation, basically. And it's targeting the slowdown of that by keeping policy very tight. And by, by the very definition and buildup of this system, Jack, it means that policy is going to be kept very tight even when it becomes increasingly clear in leading indicators that the economy is slowing down. This has always been the case that central banks have tightened too much with hindsight, right? We have seen it in 2007, we've seen it in 2000, we've seen it in 2011 in the Eurozone, for example. This has always been the case, but this is, this is by construct. And I'm going to pause for a second, maybe you have a follow-up. Since the start of this year, 
the uh, Marcus thinks that the Federal Reserve will hike higher and also longer. So the rate cuts of 2023 are pretty much, you know, a, a bedtime story at, at this point. And the, the many rate cuts priced in for 2024, they have been gradually being priced out of the market as well. So uh, it's it's less of a dr- drastic inversion, although inversion you know, remains throughout the entire curve. Uh, so, yeah, wh- what do you think of the, th- the fact that the market now thinks the, the Fed will hike to about 5.5%, maybe even 5.75% uh, by, by October? And then you'll they'll, they'll stay there for for a, for a long time. So, Jack, um, at the Macro Compass, I have plenty of institutional clients, hedge funds, and family offices, and I have seen them putting on trades or discussing with other colleagues in the industry large trades where millions have been spent by single accounts to basically buy option structures that pay off if Fed funds are 6% even, so they hit 6%, or they remain at 55 or above by December 2023. So these trades were very popular, expressed in put spreads often, but with other option structures as well. And look, the underlying theme behind was the Fed is going to be very stubborn. You know, we understand the recession might be coming, but it's postponed, it's later in time, which means that Basically, you postpone the time by which the Fed will be cutting rates as a recession becomes more evident. And in the meantime, you have a chance that the Fed might even tighten to 6%. These are the trades that the market is currently actually still wagering on if you look at the flows in the option market. Now, one thing that has to be said here is that I'm hearing that this means that the market is pricing higher for longer. And look, there are a lot of uh, definitions going around here, Jack, but... I try to look at the numbers and at the statistics behind the bond market. So what what we have had between now and uh, beginning of the year is that there is a higher terminal rate being priced, slightly higher, five and a half shy of five and a half at the moment. What we have done mostly is we have postponed cuts to start from actually the end of 2023 to now the second half of 2024. So all we have done literally is to take almost the same amount of cuts and just delay them in time. The same cuts are now priced to start in June 24. So between June 24 and June 25, you now have 100 basis point of cuts. Is this higher for longer? Not really. What this is, is postponing the start of a slowdown that will facilitate inflation coming down and therefore the Fed cutting rates. The true higher for longer trade, which hasn't been in markets yet, and if it was, it would be a a tectonic shift across asset classes, Jack, is that the economy, including the housing market, can handle risk-free rates at 5% and more and private borrowing rates, so mortgage rates and, and corporate credit rates, at over 7%. Were that to be the case, that the economy can run, can function with these rates, you'd have a completely different bond market, Jack. You'd have the curve steepening, first of all, because all this inversion in two-year, 10-year would be priced out, There is no reason to expect ever really the Fed to cut rates by 200 basis points. And that would mean a completely different landscape as well for commodity investors, for value investors. So growth and value would have completely different meanings. None of that has been priced yet. Right. So you're... I I get what you're you're, you're saying. So um, a a true higher for longer would be one in which the 10-year is at 5%, the 30-year is at 5%, 
TLT is at $80, you know, heaven forbid that that ETF that owns the the long duration treasuries. And of, of course, that is that is a true higher for longer thing. I, I think that the cuts that were priced in, let's say, four months ago, five months ago, were so extreme that it was it's a relative relative higher for longer. So it's, it's a it's a word of semantics, you know, and, and like I think you and I on central banks, you see you're wearing a you know, beautiful shirt from uh, Macro Compass, uh, be- a beautiful shirt, except for the three letters don't don't uh, <laughs> uh, like I think you and I agree pretty much on the plumbing. I mean, you know much you know much more about it, but I'm familiar with you know the fundamentals about how central banks work. The the word print is we just disagree about that one word about, about you know. Yes. Um, so I, I think yeah, mo- I think most people who you know might see you know you're, you're very big on Twitter at, at Macro Alpha and they might see you know oh the market's not pricing f- higher for longer. Uh, they would agree with you on the facts because the facts are what they are. Yeah, we have an inverted curve. The ten years not at five point five percent, and there are cuts being priced out uh, in in twenty twenty four and and in twenty twenty five. But it's it's a, it's a relative thing. So though those cuts have been moved further and further out, um, but uh, you know if from if, if you got to go from uh, you know step one to step three, you got to go through step two first. And like mm-hmm. we've seen this before in uh you know you know uh, April and May of of twenty twenty two, where oh now the cuts that were priced in for. October of 2022 are now priced in for January of 2023. You know, it's it's yeah. it's a it's a process. So, of course. Uh, of what course, do you how do you think? Like, what's your view on whether we get the true higher for longer? Your your, uh, your true so definition. Look, a true higher for longer, as you correctly define, Jack, means that long dated bond yields need to to go up and price away all cuts. Basically, you need to have 30 year treasuries at five percent, and then you're really talking right. Now, what does that mean, really? That means that the economy can handle sustainably these higher real and nominal interest rates and keep functioning. It means basically the equilibrium interest rate has changed. That's what it means. Now, there is a a chart that I like sharing around uh, with clients, and I did before as well on Twitter, that looks at total economic debt in the US as a percentage of GDP. So that sums the public sector and the private sector debt. Put them up together and it charts them against real yields. So what you can see from that chart very clearly is that over time, over the last 20 years, but it could be longer, the more leverage in the system, both on the private sector and the public sector balance sheet, the lower were the necessary real yields to make sure the system keeps working. So basically, the more leverage you have, Jack, unless you can back it up with more growth, more structural growth, it requires, by definition, lower real interest rates to be able to refinance this debt over and over again. And the chart is is very telling, I think. And the US has moved from total debt to GDP of 170% in 2000 to 275 right now, roughly excluding financials. So it's the private sector excluding financials and the government. It's 270% of GDP. And that generally would require, according to that long-term chart, equilibrium real yields around zero-ish roughly around zero. And now we are at 150 basis points. And if we price in higher for longer, that probably means that real yields have to really stay there or even shoot a bit higher at the long end, Jack. So that would mean something has really changed here. Uh, It means the economy can refinance 3x leverage at 200 basis point positive real rates for a sustained period of time. How does that happen? We grow structurally more. That's the only way out of it, right? Especially for the private sector. The private sector cannot print money to pay its coupons. 
The private sector needs to grow. They need cash flows. They need a better salary jack. Otherwise, they cannot sustain higher borrowing costs over time. So how do you grow? Structurally, it's better demographics and better productivity. There is really no other way around. And I can't really see better demographics, to be honest, uh, after the pandemic. Globally speaking, right? I mean, you can make the case that the U.S., it's pretty decent tailwind from a demographic perspective. They have net immigration. They have a decent demographics compared to other places. But on a global scale, I can't see really uh, a better demographics post-pandemic. Can you see better productivity? Maybe we can discuss about that, but it's a very long-term process. And this will be instead a tectonic shift. The other way to put this around will be look at the housing market and tell me that that can work as it did in 20, between 2015 and 2020, where mortgage rates were three, 400 basis points below what they are today. And the, the reason why I mentioned the housing market is for really for two reasons. The first is it's the biggest asset class in the world. It's bigger than the bond market and the equity market combined. It's a freaking statistics, if you ask me. It's really gigantic. So it needs to work. It's a huge generation of wealth effect. And also, wealth effect might be not really totally measurable, but what is really measurable is that the labor market dependent on the housing market is pretty large. The share of housing-related jobs in the US labor market are about 16, 17% of total, if you sum as well ancillary activities around the housing market, right? Not only construction, but anything that comes with it, brokers, uh, furniture shops, et cetera, et cetera. 16% is not a small number. It's pretty big. So the housing market needs to be able to keep working in order to generate both that wealth effect that feeds into consumer spending, feeds into portfolio effects, et cetera, and to keep working in order for the labor market to function well. So far, I don't see the evidence that the housing market can handle 7% mortgage rates, Jack. And we can talk about that. Yeah, Alf, tell me what you are seeing in the housing market because... I think the U.S. on the mortgage front may be a little bit stronger than Europe. You know, I was in uh, Italy, uh, happy to say, in, in December, and I saw on the side of bank uh, a sign that said, like, you know, it's advertising mortgage finance. I saw the word like variabile or something, and I'm like, oh right, yeah, like in in places that are in America, most mortgages are adjustable rates. You know, like yeah. in America, we have a supported by Fannie Mae and these government-sponsored you know, entities, I think, that were started during the Great Depression, they pool all these you know, mortgages together. And that's why people can borrow at you know, a 30-year rate. And in 2020, 2021, people could borrow at like 2.9%. Uh, and so as interest rates go up, yeah, you're screwed if you have to move. move uh, but if you're going to stay, you, you got it for 30 years. You know, you're, you're good. Um, so uh, to tell me, ex-US, outside of the US, yeah. how dire is the situation? And then within US... You know, is it true that the U.S. Uh, uh, mortgage borrower, uh, home borrower, is to some degree immune, or mm -hmm. uh, some degree immune from these rate hikes? So let me answer. This is really a, a two-pronged question. I'll start from the uh, outside U.S. mortgage markets. So let's set the record straight. Most mortgages in Europe are fixed and long-term fixed as well, and this is Europe with the euro especially. The exception to that will be Spain, where uh, variable mortgages are pretty popular in Spain. And I'm mentioning Spain for a second. It's, a, it's an interesting fact because in 2006 or seven, when it was very, very clear that you couldn't breach the deficit rule, so it was the early days of Europe where there was a lot of attention about public government um, uh, debt, let's say, and deficits. 
Spain well thought that because there was no freaking rule on private debt, that they would just create more money for the private sector. And the housing market was at the epicenter of that money creation, Jack. And the fact that there were variable mortgages in Spain uh, led to the fact that they might have seen cheaper at the inception of the mortgage. But as interest rates went up, these refinancing costs became unbearable. And Spain had created a massive private debt uh, bubble that actually backed a very strong housing market. House prices in Spain, I think, doubled or tripled in five years during that period on the run-up to um, the great financial crisis. So, right, and I just want to correct, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the conclusion of what I said was right, but my premise was wrong. It's, it's not just that uh, they're, they're mostly adjustable rate in Europe, it's that it's shorter duration. It's a five-year mortgage, 10-year mortgage, yeah. right? Whereas in the US, so, it's 30-year. So Europe per se, apart from Spain, has actually most mortgages being fixed and roughly around 10-year tenor. The weak linkages really are, well, let's say a couple. First, within the Eurozone, there are countries that have a massive amount of mortgage debt. I'll take the Netherlands, for example, where mortgage debt as a percentage of GDP is like over 200% for reference in the US is around 100, in Japan is around 100. So the Netherlands has more than double mortgage debt as a percentage of GDP. So the size can be very large, but those mortgages are fixed and generally for 10 years. If you look at Europe as a whole, though, outside the euro area, you have some interesting uh, countries, Jack, and some of them actually fit your description, mostly the UK and Sweden. So in the UK, you have a market where up until, actually, if I calculate it correctly, you're going to have over 2 million UK mortgages up for refinancing in 2023 right now. And why? Because most of these mortgages were done in 2017, 2018 for shorter fixed rates, so for five years. So they come up for refinancing now. That's one. And second, in the UK, over 50% of the mortgage market is a variable um, mortgage market as well. So you have a combination of variable mortgage rates and short tenor fixed mortgage mortgages. That bad combination. Bad and, and rate hikes. Bad. Uh, that's a bad... Uh, uh, now, to give the statistics, this 2.3 million, I think I calculated, UK mortgages up for refinancing in 2023, the average interest rate locked in before the refinancing period, so just until now, it's 2.5%. They're coming up for refinancing with UK mortgages, mortgages running around 6% right now. So that means, you know, this, this mortgage cost, this debt servicing costs are going to literally be felt immediately by households by existing households. So that comes to your second point, which is if this is only the problem, existing households feeling the pain of having to allocate more of their budget into higher debt servicing costs, then the US is fine because the US has a large amount, over 90% of mortgages are fixed mortgages and over 10 years. So that means people have locked in pretty decent, uh, decently low interest rates. I think 95% plus of existing mortgages are below today's levels. If it's only about existing households, you won't feel the pain because you, know, you guys have all locked in your low mortgage rate, no problem. The issue with this line of thinking is that the housing market needs new buyers. The marginal buyer, Jack, the one that is supposed to keep house prices where they are or push them higher, basically, the new marginal buyer is just priced out of the market because that guy doesn't have a salary which is double what it was before the pandemic, unfortunately for him. But his mortgage installments at today's median house price with today's mortgage rates 
are 60-70% higher than they were pre-pandemic. So it can't afford it. It's very simple. What happens in that case is that the market freezes, Jack, because you are not going to move, as you said before, unless you're forced to move. You're going to very, you're going to cling tight to your 3% third year mortgage rate. You're not going to move. You're not going to sell unless you're forced. The buyer can't buy because it's priced out of the market. So what happens in that housing market is that instead of the pain being immediately felt, it just freezes. It freezes until a new equilibrium is found. And Let's talk about the new equilibrium mentioning the headline of the day, which is that Blackstone, which was in the headlines a few months ago for gating the redemptions in their very large and popular uh, real estate fund. So basically denying investors from withdrawing money from their fund, unless for a small percentage every quarter, has today announced a default on a bond of over $560 million, which is a um, commercial Basically, it's, it's a securities. It's a security backed by uh, commercial mortgages, commercial real estate, offices, and stores. They have defaulted because to service the coupons that investors demand to invest in this security, they were at some point forced to sell, try and sell the underlying offices and stores that are the very collateral of this security. And guess what, Jack? They couldn't find any decent bidder in time. So as the market is frozen, they couldn't dispose of the very assets underlying the security and therefore they defaulted on the security itself. This is a small bond. It's not a systemic event yet, but it shows where we are. You have large institutional investors that are sitting on large portfolios of properties. You have retail investors that have piled in into these products looking for yields between 2013 and 2020, looking for rental yields, participation in, 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 the, in the rental, in, in the you know, buy-to-let market. And now these guys want out because they realize the market is slowing down. And KKR, Blackstone are just denying redemptions. They're trying to basically freeze the market even further. So the market is looking for a new equilibrium. It's completely frozen, both from an institutional and from a retail perspective. We're looking for a new equilibrium. And now I'm going to throw a question at you, Jack. What's the new equilibrium here? Jack, is it lower mortgage rates? Is it salaries rising by 20% over the next one to two years so that people can afford paying these mortgage installments? What's the new equilibrium? Is it lower house prices? Is it fire sales? What's the new equilibrium? So I separate them. That's a great question. I separate them to commercial and uh, residential. The, the default that you mentioned by Blackstone that um, was a commercial property, so offices and uh, stores, as you mentioned. And I just pulling up the Bloomberg article, 45% vacancy rate. And that means that 45% of the properties aren't receiving income. It doesn't mean people not in the building. You know, in, in April 2020, the vacancy rates in the US were still like, uh, you know, 5% because people were still paying even though no one was in the building. So it could be even fewer than people who were actually in the building. I, I, I think a lot of the, uh, some of that, not a lot, a lot is uh, the secular shift of people working from from home, and uh, so that actually might help the residential market and not you know the, what is uh, bad for the office market could be good for the residential uh, market. Residential real estate, I definitely think prices are headed lower. I, I think that's a, a mainstream opinion, and I think that the official data on the Case Shiller is extremely lagging. And if you look at like home builders and you compare uh, the prices that they're actually selling, not closing deals, but new yeah. sales, you know, uh, 
th- those are down, um, you know, something like you know six percent over the past uh, two quarters. So that's yeah. I, th- I think home prices are going down, uh, but I I think mortgage rates are going to do what. Uh, the Federal Reserve does. So you know, it's mortgage rates will do what the 10-year does or th- what the 30-year does, and it will trade at a spread, um, which is now widening because of a quantitative tightening. Uh, and then, but the, you know, if the 10-year is going to go up, then yeah, the mortgage rates will, will stay high. So uh, that, that, that could happen. Bad. Like the, your, your, your fundamental logic is, is, is all right. And I think you know, when, earlier when you talked about um, demographics and, and real yields, uh, debt to GDP, those are... Uh, Pr- pr- arguments that on a long time horizon I find extremely convincing. But like, what what uh, do you say about what the U.S. ten year or U.S. thirty year will do over the next two to three months? Like, I could see the U.S. two year exploding higher and then doing what you say, you know? Yeah. But short term, yeah. I don't know. So look again, we are in the fa- remember what I said at the very beginning of the interview, Jack. Twenty twenty three, roughly June is my timing for the start of a recession in the U.S. Recession namely means that earnings per share are going to be negative on a year-on-year basis. We are getting there very quickly on that front. The labor market needs to be in recessionary territory as well. And that means non-farm payroll need to print sustainably below 100, 150K. So that's below the level necessary to keep unemployment rate stable. So you need to have an employment rate moving up slowly but surely. Then you can call it a recession. I think the start of that is roughly June, July this year in the U.S., between now and June, July, there's a long way to go, my friend, and you're totally right. So what we are seeing right now, in my framework at least, is the animal spirits that ran through the market between November and February, and the Fed didn't keep them in check. You had Powell talking about the disinflationary process has started. Do you remember that? Like he was very confident that things are getting better. There is no reason for him to fight yeah. back. February 1, it took me off guard. It, it was a humbling day for me, for sure. Yeah. So that was bad risk management from Powell, if you ask me. It was too sure, I think, that things were really improving, so he didn't need to fight back because the Fed does not want a recession. Like, if they can achieve this immaculate soft landing, then, wow, that's great. So he was actually seeing that price into the market somehow showing up in the data as well. That's amazing. He doesn't need to fight that back, right? But animal spirits were running loose. And you see those animal spirits now being reflected in soft data, in PMIs, in housing data, in whatever it is, right? So you, are, you have this window right now where people are, are seeing this loosening of financial conditions translate into better macro data, and then therefore extrapolating that the US has definitely avoided a recession, that Europe has definitely avoided a recession, that the Chinese reopening will boost global growth, to the point that we don't need to worry at all about the recession anymore. And in that environment, short term, for the next two to three months, you have these vicious reactions where you have front-end bond yields leading the curve higher. You have two-year interest rates in the U.S. almost at 5% as we speak, right? And when two-year moves up, then the back end of the curve, even if it remains inverted, it mechanically moves higher in yields as well. The way I see this, Jack, is it really depends on your time horizon. But if somebody would say, if your model are pointing to the modal outcome being a recession starting in June, July, and you're getting the chance to buy five-year rates at four and a half, four seventy percent in the US, just as we approach a recession, then yes, I would like to have them in my portfolio. And the reason why is that the Federal Reserve in an average recession cuts interest rates 
below neutral rates. So let me repeat that, below neutral rates. Below neutral rates in the US, unless the world has changed, means that Fed funds need to be cut at to 1.5%, roughly, just to call the number. 15 to 2% is below neutral. We will be starting from 55 Jack. That's quite a number. And at that point, we'll have the market pricing in before they come in with the recessionary pricing, maybe 100, 150 basis point cuts. You instead will be looking at 300 plus. So there is a lot more to squeeze in from lower bond yields and higher bond returns if you're given the chance and you have a good timing in adding these bonds to your portfolio just before things deteriorate. So in other words, there is this window for which we're going to have cyclically better data feeding into the market. And I think you have to be smart in trying to cut through the noise and understand whether that is a structural increase in growth. In that case, it's higher for longer, really being priced out. That is not my base case. Or if that is a temporary blip higher in growth, which you have to use in your favor to actually load up on assets that protect your portfolio against a recession. And that is what um, my models are pointing to. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. And the recession that, that you see that is on the horizon or you know imminent, um, what what is the flavor of that recession? Because you know, Alf, one of the many things you and I have in common is I think people think that you and I are maybe a little bit older than we actually are. So you know, the, the major recessions during our lifetime were uh, twenty twenty. Uh, well, in Europe, you know, early two thousands. I mean, the entire decade. Um, but and and two thousand eight and. Um, and the dot-com bursting of early 2000. And all of those were uh, very strange and unique where uh, in, you know, in 2008, there was toxic acids that were infested the globe, sent from America, uh, yeah. that you know, ruined the global economy for many years. Uh, and then you know, China did a biblical amount of, of money printing in, in 2009. Uh, but it was very correlated. All the correlations went to one. Oh, oil went down. Stocks went down. Uh, yeah. The bank stocks went down. The, the the copper the copper price went collapsed. It was all everything. You know everything went down. Whereas, what do you think this might be? You know, a decoupled recession where yes, uh, a, a growth in maybe America, I mean, Europe will be uh, weak, uh, a technical recession, but it, it may not be an extreme recession, and it could be one where the Chinese economy is is viciously emerging from uh, mm -hmm. you know a, a huge bottom. And, the, uh, you know, right now it could be like April 2020 in China where, you know, it, it, we could be at the start of a, a new bull market. The price of copper could be $5 even as the NBER declares a, you know, a recession. Yeah. Uh, and, and in that, uh, could we have high inflation in, in, you know, could the price of oil 
go to back over a hundred dollars. You know, you said you think the recession will start in uh, when you say June, June, July, June. yeah, June, June, June. yeah. June, so yeah. I think the MBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, said the recession in the U.S. started in December two thousand and seven, and I think uh-huh. the price of oil went to like one hundred forty dollars in like July of two thousand and eight. Yep. So that's seven months after the, the official recession was declared, even though it was you know, retroactive and declared later, the price of oil. So could it be, you're right, the recession starts in June uh, of this mm-hmm. year, but right. then in February, and people can tell I'm not very good at math, in February of 2024, the price of oil is at $200. So let me say, I don't think that's my base case, but it could happen, it could happen because the world is not in sync this time. A lot of things have changed compared to this kind of globally synced small cycles we have seen between 2012 and 2020. China has always played a little bit counter-cyclical when it comes to credit creation. So in 2009, for instance, China was going ballistic in printing uh, real economy money to stimulate their their economy, right? While everybody else was trying to, uh, you know, grapple with the uh, consequences of the great financial crisis and tr- so trying to do austerity and deleveraging and all of that. So China was counter-cyclical back then. And ch- China has been counter-cyclical already a couple of times. And this time, actually, it's even more counter-cyclical, if you ask me, because what's, what's happening now is that you know, Chinese credit creation is not going through the roof, but it has been okay now for three to four quarters, which means this money has been created and it sits on the consumer's balance sheet. It sits on the private sector balance sheet, which couldn't spend it, Jack, for like most of last year. Everybody was locked home in China. Now they can. So it's going to take a little bit of time, but it's going to feed into not only Chinese growth numbers, but in whatever China needs to grow. And industrial metals are something that China needs to grow. They consume industrial metals to a very large extent. For some of those, China accounts for over 60% of global demand. That's a scary number. So aluminum, zinc, uh, some of these metals, China accounts for 60% of global demand. So if China is picking up on reopening growth with pent-up demand from past year fiscal stimulus and a bit of credit stimulus on top of it today, then you could see some of these commodities rallying. And your example from 2008 is pretty telling because yes, the recession had started, but still commodity prices, especially spot commodity prices, can still be driven by very technical supply and demand factors. That's why I didn't particularly talk about the commodity short when talking about positioning portfolios for a recession. I think the Fed reaction function here really hold the keys for investors trying to generate returns. Because look, let's talk about the bond and the equity market. So what happens if unemployment rate starts moving up And at the same time, it becomes more evident that the U.S. domestic economy is slowly walking into a recession, is that the Fed incentive scheme to keep rates at where the market is pricing forwards today, Jack, is not there anymore. There is no reason from a risk management perspective for the Fed to keep Fed funds at 5.5% for a year if it becomes clear that the labor market is weakening, it becomes clear that wage growth is coming down. There is no reason anymore. And it's exactly at the moment where nobody wants bonds just before actually that moment happens. Everybody hates bonds. Nobody needs bonds anymore. And the Fed is going to shift slowly the reaction function to weaker data that you have to buy bonds. Historically speaking, you get this banger 10% plus returns in bonds 
when this combination happens. And I think this combination of everybody hating bonds and everybody finding out they need bonds a couple of months later is going to happen in a couple of months from now. So probably end of March, beginning of April could be a pretty good period to start really adding bonds to your portfolio. The equity market is an interesting beast because the equity market doesn't bottom when earnings bottom. That's a very broad misconception that is going around there is that, hey, if earnings are declining, I can't buy stocks because that's not good, right? Well, in 2019, earnings grew by 0% in the S&P 500 companies and the S&P rallied 30% year on year in 2019. Why, Jack? Because in January 2019, Powell told us he was done. He's done. It's over. It's done. I, I'm not going to tighten anymore. Forget about it. I'm going to lose and I'm going to be a commodity, blah, blah, blah. With a bit of lag, valuations can therefore start increasing, right? So even if earnings were pretty poor in 2019, the S&P rallied. So what are we looking at here now? We are looking at earnings per share probably dropping for a few more quarters, at least in my models, all the way down to negative 15% year on year. You're also looking at the Federal Reserve, if I'm right, starting to change the reaction function to uh, rates at uh, five and a half forever or for as long as they need to be to, whoa, 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 we maybe did a bit too much. We can ease down. We can cut rates. That feeds into equity valuations and sentiment with a bit of a delay. So by the end of this year, you might actually find the equity markets at pretty interesting levels from a risk reward perspective. But the plan should be that if I'm right on a recession hitting in June, you first buy bonds. As you head into a recession, you still stay away from equities. And a few quarters later, you'll find great opportunities to start buying equities. So look, Jack, for a sustainable new bull market to start, uh, and I've heard this already a couple of times. So in July 2022, a new bull market was starting. People have a short memory, but the Nasdaq had rallied 20% in like five weeks and everybody was calling for a new bull market. You had the same as well between November and February, where all of a sudden, until a few weeks ago, Jack, a new bull market had started, right? So it was the end of the bear market, it's over. Why that doesn't work is that for a new sustainable bull market to start, you need two conditions. You need earnings to be close to bottoming, close to a couple of quarters before it's already enough, the final bottom. And most importantly, you need the Federal Reserve to have eased rates below neutral for already a couple of quarters. That's the most important part. You need the Fed to be on a path to easing rates below neutral. As we stand today, Jack, from my point of view, we have neither of those conditions validated. You have earnings that are still declining on a, on a rate of change basis. They might not be done declining and not nearly done. Like it probably continues for a few quarters to go. So you are not close to that moment. And uh, have you seen Powell talking about easing rates all the way back to neutral or below neutral? I think that's like his least priority at the moment. So I find it very hard to say, look, with the S&P at 4,000 or 4,200 a few, a few months ago, there's a great risk reward in buying equities. The other way to look at it is risk premium. So if you look at earnings yield on the S&P 500 against long-dated real yields, so what you're doing there is you're an asset allocator, Jack, and you can choose to park money somewhere. You can buy risk-free, real interest rates. You buy tips, in other words. And today you get 150 basis points, long-dated. You can lock them in, basically. And then 
you can otherwise invest in risk assets. So let's take the equity market and you get an earnings yield in the S&P today, which is about, used to be 5% roughly. So that's the inverse of forward PE. So forward PE in the S&P used to be like 18 or around this line. So let's say around 5%, right? And then you look at the spread between the two. So what, what's your additional risk premium? What's your additional return compensation for investing in risk assets that rather than just locking in real interest rates at one and a half percent. That spread is actually very, very low from an historical perspective. It sits into the very expensive band. So you're looking at markets that don't offer much risk premium on the table against a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the macro cycle. And that I think is preventing the S&P from engaging into a new bull market. And on the other hand, the Fed keeping policy tight is also preventing bonds from rallying. So right now we are in this stasis period in which you really can't buy much from a long-only perspective. But I think that moment is ending right when bonds will offer an amazing opportunity for people to load them up as we head into a recession starting in summer. And then only later on, you can start adding equities to your portfolio. At least that's my framework. Mm. Uh, thanks, Alf. So as I said, right now, the market's pricing the, the Fed could get to 5.5% or 5.75% by by April. Uh, now they're at, at 475, and that's on the, the top end of the Fed funds rate. So the actual one will be slightly below that. Um, so do you think that they will get there? And do you think that the long bonds trade will work even if they do get there? Because would that require interest rates to on the short end to go up as long end rates go down? So sort of a, a twisting? which yeah. uh, is pretty, you know, it's a lot of so contortion. There, there are a couple of ways that the long bond position can work. The first is that the Fed doesn't validate forwards, doesn't hike as much as bond markets are pricing them to hike. Um, if that happens, then most of the rally actually happens in the short end of the bond market because all these hikes pricing to two-year bonds today are not going to happen if that is the case, right? The other way is if they do get there, but in the way of getting there, the economy really weakens badly. And so markets have to price recessionary cuts later on. And as we discussed, Jack, recessionary cuts are not 100 basis point, they're 300 basis point plus. And so the backend actually rallies more in that environment. The way I think this is going to happen is the latter. So I do think that because of the reaction function and because of this temporary window that we just discussed of better macro data, the Fed and markets might be willing to push to go to 5.5% Fed funds rate just before the summer. As they get there and the economy weakens, you have that exact confluence of a lot being validated by the Fed but at the same time, markets weakening and the economy weakening pretty aggressively, which will basically be reflected into more cuts, recessionary cuts being priced into the bond market. And then ultimately, the Fed having to capitulate and validate these recessionary cuts starting from the second half of this year. So because of this structure, I think that you, know, you can basically try and patiently add bonds to your portfolio between now and the moment when nobody will want bonds. That's a cathartical moment that we have seen a couple of times. October 2018, nobody wants bonds. I don't know if you remember, but red hot labor market, wage growth picking up, Powell coming to the wire with the following sentence, we are far away from neutral rates, 
holy crap, the guy was not even a neutral. So and you need to tighten above neutral. So everybody freaked out. Nobody wanted bonds anymore. And that was the moment when, with hindsight, uh, buying bonds would have delivered a very, very positive uh, 12 months subsequent return over 10%. If you go back in time, there are a couple of, moment, of moments where buying bonds deliver over 10% return in the subsequent 12 months. They always have two features in common. Nobody wants bonds. And at the same time, you're very close to the moment where everybody will realize they don't have bonds in the portfolio, but they need bonds in the portfolio because the economy is weakening pretty rapidly. I think that confluence of factors will happen again um, maybe in a month, maybe in two months, but we're getting pretty close to that window, I think. And how much of that depends on inflation? Because uh, we're recording March 2nd, and today we just got the yeah, Eurozone in inflation. Uh, core inflation was 5 point, uh, sorry, uh, what was it? 5.6% um, uh, core inflation. So not including natural gas, not including, you know, uh, it's not like, oh, the price of natural gas has you know collapsed as it has, and that's why inflation is coming down. Uh, no, this is not including uh, any of those things. Core inflation is 5.6% in, in Europe. And I think it's gone up literally every single month uh, on a year-over-year -year basis, which is you know problematic in its own way, uh, of 2022. Maybe one month I had where it was flat. But uh, that's, you know, wouldn't we, wouldn't we want to start to see inflation actually fall in Europe, core inflation, mm -hmm. before we, we would want to really leg into these bond trades? You know, maybe, okay, yeah, right now bonds, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get a few of them. But like before, if you want, we really want to go hard on these bonds. Don't you want to see inflation mm -hmm. coming down hard? Because um, I can see this core inflation print in Europe going up. The ECB is going to cut more. Your Iber got, you know, German two year up, Italian uh, two year up. And then people who own uh, treasuries are saying, what the, the German two year is now getting me 3%. Uh, the 5% the on the US treasury yields, not enough. So they sell US treasuries. Treasury yields go up because, you know, bond yields are, are fungible. Uh, what do you think about that? So, of course, inflation slowing down helps. Um, the problem with waiting for inflation to slow down is that if we're going the recessionary path, then there's going to be a lot more that goes down before inflation goes down, Jack. I mean, inflation is the, one of the most lagging indicators out there, especially core services, which is what central banks are interested in. That only goes down when forward-looking macro indicators have gone down, Credit has become scarce. Companies start laying off people. Wage growth slows down. The economy basically is in a recession. And finally, you have core services inflation slowing down. So if you're waiting for the sixth point on my list, you might be a bit late. That's the main problem. So you want to find the moment when the weakness has become evident enough for central banks to understand they have done enough damage. So really, that's what you want. You want to, we want a moment where basically nobody wants bonds yet, but the signals are becoming very clear that they will need bonds because central banks do realize they've done enough damage. And then ultimately, that translates as well into lower inflation down the road, but you will have bought bonds before that. That's the optimal time to do that from an historical perspective. Basically, what I'm saying, Jack, is if you want core inflation in the US to slow down to a point that makes the Fed comfortable with lowering rates back to neutral, you'll probably need to wait a year, year and a half from today, roughly. Just mechanically speaking, mm -hmm. you have 
housing inflation in the US that will only go down in the second half of this year because of how it's calculated in the CPI. Then you'll have goods inflation that is already in kind of disinflationary territory. So, you know, that will help a little bit, but not much. So in order for core services inflation in the US to slow down, you'll need probably to wait one and a half years to see that levels consistent with the Fed target. You don't want to wait for that to buy bonds. You want for the moment where nobody wants them and the moment where macro indicators are showing clear weakness in the labor market or pointing to clear weakness in the labor market and in the economy so that you can front load the Fed recessionary cuts. That's exactly when you want to buy bonds. I think we get a good chance in, um, in a couple of weeks or maybe in a couple of months. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. What would you say, Alf, is the weakest data, either weakest data point, either in Europe or the US or both, that you say, aha, this is weak, and once this domino falls and it and it has other data points are going to go because the, the strong labor, uh, you know, data, data points. Everyone knows, like three point four percent unemployment in the U.S. Yeah. What is what is the data point that gives you the most confidence? To say, hmm, we're about to tip into a recession. In Europe, what I would be a bit scared about would be a continuation of um, real spending being low. So real retail sales in Germany have now experienced the worst drawdown since 2008 and are almost at par from an inflation adjusted perspective. Retail sales in Germany have drew down from their top as fast as they did during the great financial crisis. So that means consumers in real terms are not increasing their spending. Their volume of spending is not increasing, Jack. So if that continues, it tells me that consumers are feeling the heat. And if consumers feel the heat in a consumer-driven economy, like the US is or, the, or Europe is, you actually have, um, I think, a pretty clear indicator that things are slowing down. So that would be one thing I would watch for in Europe, a continuation or not of this trend. What I would look for in the US, well, look here, the key is really layoffs, is if I am right on the housing market being frozen, if I'm right on the corporate credit market also having broad problems in refinancing debt at these corporate borrowing rates, if I'm right on that mechanism of tight credit conditions, then what you want to see is this translating into companies cutting structural costs like permanent workers. That's what you want to pay attention to. So now when it comes to the labor market, there are 2,000 indicators in the US and somebody pointing and the challenger job cuts indicator. Don't, don't know whether you're familiar with that series. They look at how many job cuts have been announced across industries, right? And 
it's been picking up, but so far it's been very strongly skewed towards the tech sector. So the tech sector has laid off quite some employees and that's caused this series to jump. I want to see a, a broadening of this weakening when it comes to layoffs being shown in forward leading, in leading indicators in the labor market in the US. Have I seen that happening? Not yet. I've seen a labor market that slows down on a pace of hiring basis, definitely slowing down, but not yet tilting into the point where it becomes clear that companies are letting people go. And right now they're not. So non-farm payrolls are not the best, the most clean indicator as well for that because of statistical inconsistencies. But if you look at the blend of indicators in the labor market in the US, we are not there yet. I will pay close attention to these uh, leading indicators in, in the labor market to try and understand where do we stand. So Alf, you, you've made a lot of compelling arguments uh, about why you like bonds at this point and why you don't like stocks at, at this point. Uh, but you know, you are a big fan of a saying, there's a time to go long, there's a time to go short, and there's a time to go fishing. Uh, you, uh, we, we, you've made the arguments uh, that the audience has you know, uh, digested and, and listened to your, your well-formed arguments, but you know, it's a difference between thinking something and uh, you know, actually take, taking action. So uh, is it time right now, we're recording on March 2nd, I think this will probably air on March 6th, right now, is it time to go long bonds? Is it time to go short stocks? Or is it time to say, you know, my macro framework is telling me this, but I'm probably going to you know, uh, go fishing? So, Jack, let's make it pretty concrete. Um, at the Macro Compass, together with the research, I also provide people with very actionable ETF long-term portfolio. So easy to look at, replicate, and understand what am I really buying in which, per in which percentage and when and why. So if I look at that book today, it has a very low um, beta exposure to, to stocks, like very, very little. So no risk exposure whatsoever, not long, not short, on a net basis, pretty neutral there. And then it has some exposure to, um, let's say, recessionary uh, items. So, so some exposure to bonds, some exposure to the Japanese yen, for example. So assets that benefit from weaker economic growth in general. Am I loaded up on bonds as we speak? No, not yet. Have I started adding them? Yes, I have. So that's where I stand today. Um, there are further considerations as in, for instance, what, what role does gold play? Do you want to buy real interest rates rather than nominal interest rates at this stage? When would it be the time to actually add more duration to the portfolio? By far the largest holding I have today is an ETF called BIL, which basically replicates bills in the US. Yeah. That goes to say that I'm making 5% risk-free and I, don't, I see that as a very high hurdle to beat, to take risks somewhere else and try to make returns that are in excess of 5% annualized by taking the right amount of risk. As we see things today, it's not easy to do that. Certainly not in risk assets, the way I see things. It will be the case in bonds, I expect, where I expect returns well in excess of 10% over time. But have I loaded up on that trade yet? Not yet. Have I started adding them? Yes, a bit. When will I add more bonds? This will probably be the first addition to the portfolio when it comes to really taking risks. When I will be doing that? Exactly at the confluence where everybody hates bonds. We're getting very close. Nobody wants them anymore. It's the worst asset ever. It's terrible. doesn't diversify. Uh, the world has changed. You know, this narrative is becoming more entrenched as we speak. And as we get closer to 
recessionary data waves. And we are not there yet from that front because we have this temporary window of strong economic data we need to um, actually navigate before we get there. So I'm planning to increase my bond exposure pretty materially over the next few months. When am I going to do that? Well, let's see what the macro models and the data actually point to over the next few months. Thank you, Alfie. I'm glad you mentioned gold. It seems kind of gold seems pretty pretty compelling here. Um, Alf, thanks so much for for joining. Uh, tell us about your your research service, the Macro Compass. Why did you found it? What what do you offer to 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 clients? And yeah, Jack, it's macro in plain English, uh, with an Italian accent, maybe. Uh, Look, I've been in an industry for um, more than eight years, run institutional portfolios, pretty large sizes as well, multi-asset. I've had the chance to learn a lot. All I'm trying to do is to make sure that my mistakes, my experience, my models are shared with customers. So somebody subscribing to the Macro Compass gets access to all my research, so multiple pieces a week, timely as well when something big is going on, like a central bank meeting, for example. Then they get access to ETF portfolios long-term, tactical trades more short-term, interactive tools, because I care a lot about education. I want people to get their hands dirty in playing around with the same tools I use to make investment decisions and more. And all of that is at themacrocompass.com, hopefully for something that people will find relatively good value for money. Yes. And not only are you a really smart guy who you know understands finance, but a lot of people who are you know smart and understand finance can't really communicate it, but you're an excellent communicator. So I think you, oh, you can really give an, give an understanding. So, Is it because I move my hands when I speak <laughs> or what is this? In written form. <laughs> I can feel the moving while you're, while you're writing. Uh, well, Al, thanks so much for joining. Thanks everyone for watching. And you know, as everyone knows, on Twitter, you are at MacroAlf where you're just uh, making, it, making it a big storm. Talk soon, my friend. Thanks for having me, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.